Today on The Lost Debate Show, we'll discuss climate protests and what exactly makes them effective or ineffective, the rise of outsider political candidates like Vivek and RFK Jr. in 2024, and news that Mitt Romney is retiring and are mounting gerontocracy in this country. And all of that and more on this episode of The Lost Debate, the show for political eclectics. I'm joined by Isaac Saul, who writes the Tangled newsletter, and I'm sure that many of our listeners remember him from co-hosting with Ravi. So thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Ricky. I'm glad to be here. So I think a great place to dig in is this news from, I guess, last week now that that Mitt Romney is retiring. Um, He does not plan to run for re-election. He was the 2012 candidate for president and obviously soared really high, but now at 76 is deciding that it's time to bow out and suggested that Trump at 77 and Biden at 80 do the same. So I know that you've written about this issue recently. And what do you, what do you make of this news and whether people will actually follow Romney's lead? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's kind of remarkable that this is a story you know, a 76-year-old senator slash former governor, former presidential candidate retiring should be normal. I mean, what what Mitt Romney's doing should be the norm. He's like looking around. He's got 25 grandchildren or something. He's made a good career. He's had his time in the Senate serving as, you know, a former governor of Massachusetts, took a couple of runs at being president, didn't work out. And it's like, all right, it's time to hang it up. I'm 76. I'm going to go, you know, enjoy the rest of my life in retirement with my wife and my grandkids. And I think that's a really normal, sane thing for any American working person to do. What's kind of nuts is that it's not normal at all. I mean, it's especially in the last 20 years, it's something that we're seeing less and less. And uh, it stands out because he's a prominent politician who's walking away you know, before he's having major health episodes in Congress speaking to reporters or whatever, like we've seen with Dianne Feinstein or Mitch McConnell. And I loved what he said. I mean, it was a little bit of a shot across the bow at Trump and Biden and some of his colleagues, but he put it really plainly. He just said, I'm I'm going to be 80 my next term if I run for re-election and it's time for a new generation of Americans to step up and take over. And so, you know, I'm stepping down. I think Obviously, there's a little bit of unsaid stuff there, which is that he probably would have had a tough re-election campaign. I think he ultimately would have won, honestly, but he would have had to spend a lot of money and campaign really hard. And given his opposition to Trump, there was plenty of Republicans in Utah who I think would have opposed him. But, you know, it's nuts that this is a, a huge story. I am not optimistic that people are going to follow his lead, unfortunately. I, I really wish that I were, but I'm not. So, you know, I, I hope that he starts a trend, but I, I'm, I'm grateful that he's doing it. I'm grateful that he said it the way he said it. And I hope that it, it resonates with people and earns him some goodwill. And who knows, maybe there's a couple senators or members of the house who see this and see the positive reception he's getting for stepping down when he is and think to themselves, you know, maybe this is a, a good thing to do. Maybe I should really step away like like Romney did. And just to put some flesh on the bones of what exactly he said, um, this is a quote from him. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. And I find this interesting because I was recently um, sifting through some statistics on Gen Z being the resident Zoomer at the New York Post um, and writing about how my generation soured the most dramatically on Biden um, since he came into office. They were the most optimistic and had the most precipitous fall in approval ratings of any generation. And I think that that's um, really notable. And there was a recent New York Times Siena poll that asked Gen Z members whether they um, approved of Biden and they had a 4% very favorable rating compared to 17% in the general population. So that's less than a quarter. Um, And of those who were Democrats who did not want Biden, um, 40% cited age as a reason that they don't support him. And then there was like another proportion I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but something like cognitive ability or something, which you could say goes hand in hand more or less. And surprisingly to me, the person that was almost as popular among Gen Z um, Democrats in the primary was Marianne Williamson. 
So Biden and Marianne are like basically neck and neck. I think that's pretty much the only demo that she's pulling in any considerable amount at the moment. But I'm curious how you think um, like younger voters in this very obvious demand for alternative younger candidates that are more reflective to them will impact this because by 2028, half of, of all voters will be Gen Z or millennial. And I, I, I think there's going to be a larger contingent of people who are going to be pushing back against this concept that we're just going to reelect people until they no longer can be reelected. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, first of all, basically every election cycle, we talk a lot about young voters, specifically the kind of 18 to 25, 18 to 30 year old block and what they're going to do. It's rare, I would say, for them to have a really notable major impact on presidential elections, at least. I mean, typically, historically, young voters are keen on sort of uh, expressing their disapproval and then not actually showing up to vote, which is unfortunate. I hope that that trend changes. So, you know, for Biden's fate, I'm a little skeptical of, you know, how big of an impact it's going to play. That being said, Biden won the 2020 presidential race by the skin of his teeth, really, across three or four states. So he doesn't have much margin for error. He can't lose, you know, 10 or 20,000 18 to 30 year old voters in Pennsylvania and Michigan. That could swing the election. I would suspect that at least in the primary, we're going to see probably some surprising results among Democrats, given that there is no real primary. I mean, I, I, I think that Biden, you know, early on in the general election is going to have a lot of trouble getting enthusiasm, especially from young voters. I think we'll see young voters participating in Republican primary races probably at a higher rate than we might normally see, because if you don't see the Democratic Party having a primary, what's your alternative if you want to be involved in shaping the the non-Trump Biden race, which I think a lot of young voters are going to want to do? This is one thing that I think the Republican Party is actually doing a better job of, you know, in terms of quote unquote representation, which I'm not a big fan of identity politics, but Democrats tend to care a lot about, you know, speaking to different classes of Americans and different genders and races and all this stuff. And Republican voters have options when it comes to their bench with young candidates, young politicos who are kind of coming up and are making a name for themselves in Congress. Vivek's obviously somebody who's kind of gotten a lot of attention during this election cycle, but you know, even in Congress, you look at people like Josh Halley or J.D. Vance or, you know, other senators like that who are in the news a lot and are under the age of 50. I think Republicans are doing a much better job of kind of building out that bench right now. So I, I'll believe it when I see it in terms of the impact young voters are going to have on something like a presidential race. But I will say that Democrats can't really ignore this issue. And especially as it relates to Biden, you know, I think he's one major kind of McConnell-esque health episode in front of the cameras away from losing a lot of support. I mean, we have the unbelievable highlight reels of the Biden gaffes and him Unreal. not knowing where he is. And, you know, they're they're nutty, but they're almost like right on the border of, of like, oh, he looks really tired or... Um, you know, this is just kind of like he's an old guy, but maybe everything's okay. And and I think he is like really, really close to doing something that's just like this is, you know, you can't come back from this. I mean, the the stuff that happened with McConnell, I think, is a good example of if something like that were to happen to Biden. I think the floor would come out in in a lot of ways on like the support of people who would back him for president. Um, so. We'll see. They're playing a very dicey game, in my opinion. Yeah, the interesting thing on the Biden front is that there is just like such an extensive history of his gaffes, too. Like it's not only the the very evident older age stuff. It's like the just for a long while he's been <laughs> remarkably gaff prone. Like, have you seen that um, that video from a while back about the kids in the pool and his leg hair? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, I mean. 
The McConnell thing was shocking. Also shocking to me was that Pelosi is saying that she's going to run again and she's already 83 years old and she's saying that now. And yeah, this just seems to be like across the board that this is a major issue of relinquishing power. And I think part of that, that like or a factor that that leads into that is just like the incredibly high incumbent reelection rate that we have. Like, I think it's well into the 90s in um, in Congress. And, you know, that's like people hold on to and seize power in a way that I think is unhealthy for democracy. And I, it's interesting to me that over 75 percent of voters seem to be into the idea of an age limit for political office. I, I'm definitely not in as much compelled by a a strict age limit. I think that Trump and Biden are three years apart. I haven't, I mean, I've seen a lot of things that I don't love about Trump, but one of them has not been that he has these like enormous gaffes that I think are based on his age. My dad's 86. I think he's actually sharper than Biden is right now. Um, And I even like Bernie, who I'm definitely not a fan of Bernie's viewpoints, but I think that he's perfectly cognitively capable. And I'd rather not draw that that kind of strict line myself. I'd probably lean more towards maybe requiring cognitive tests if you reach a certain age and you're elected Um, or at the very least, like making that a like, I mean, I think if, if one candidate comes out and says I'm older, but I did this and my my competitors should do the same. That could be a a way to kind of enforce that without necessarily enforcing a law. But what's your take on, on whether there's actual support for any sort of reform on this front? Probably the, the most popular one is just term limits, which like you, I am not particularly keen on age limits for a lot of the same reasons you cited. I think we can see the difference in politicians just among the folks who are in the Senate or have served in the White House and are over the age of, say, 70, there's a wide gap there. Uh, I, I watch Trump and Biden talk often. And I think if you watch either of them from 10 years ago, you watch a video of them from 10 years ago and a video today, you'll see how significantly they've aged. I think the difference is much more dramatic with Biden than it is with Trump. And just to put this in perspective, I mean, when I wrote about this and I just wanted to look it up really quick so I didn't fudge the numbers, but it's not like our imagination that this is happening or or an issue that is something we've been dealing with forever. The situation we have right now is pretty novel. In the year 2000, the percentage of senators who were over the age of 70 was 5%. In 2010, it was 15%. And today it's almost 25%. So Almost one in four senators are over the age of 70, which is like totally nuts. And just statistically, regardless of you know whether you want age limits or not, you're going to run into a lot more issues like you see with Mitch McConnell or Dianne Feinstein or whatever. Just statistically, if you have a bunch more people over the age of 70, they're just more likely to have these kinds of health issues. So, you know, my preference would be that senators do what Mitt Romney is doing and just make the choice themselves. I think given that they're not, I'm very supportive of some kind of reform to address that. Term limits is the thing that has the most support from the public. And it's probably the cleanest fix, in my opinion. It's a bummer because a lot of people have representatives and senators that they would love to keep in office for 30 or 40 years. And if they start serving when they're 30 years old, you know, they could serve till they're 60 or 70. And I get that. But um, I think the upside of it is is really strong. I think given the power of the incumbency, given the issues we have with gerrymandering, being able to say, you know, you get 12 years in office or 18 years in office or whatever you want to pick, and then it's over is a good way to keep fresh blood in Congress and probably a good way to address some other issues we have, just like the way so many members play to the the real partisan base in order to get reelected and things like that. So I was not always somebody who was on board with term limits, but I think given the situation we have now, there has to be something. And I prefer that solution much more than I do something like uh, age limits in, in Congress. Well, we'll have to see if Romney actually starts a wave here. I share your skepticism that that will be the case. Um, But let's turn to the situation with protests as of late, particularly regarding climate. And I'll start this segment off with a story from the other day, because I 
I was in my neighborhood the other day and there was this book signing. I don't even know whose it was, but there was this big long, long line of people. And I could hear this like screaming and like obviously like megaphone kind of amplified yelling. And so I walked over towards it just to see what was going on. And they were protesting something about um like exotic furs or exotic skins or something. And um, listeners to the podcast will know that I am my one bleeding heart liberal characteristic is that I'm like a hardcore animal rights girl. I'm definitely a, a closet PETA girl at the post. But I walk by and I'm like watching these petulant, like childlike, obnoxious protesters. And even though I completely agreed with their cause, something about it just like irked me and totally turned me off. And like, well, I was like, ew, I don't like, I don't want to associate with these people who like have bullhorns in people's faces as they're waiting to just get a book signed. Like it just felt entirely counterproductive to me, entirely obnoxious. Like these were probably prep school elite kids who spent a little too much time with a martyr complex or something that they're going to go out there and get arrested or whatever it might be. There were more cops than protesters as well, which was funny. But anyways, that's (laughs) a long-winded way to open this segment because you had an interesting newsletter um, a little while ago about climate protests and the increasingly kind of bizarre, you know, throwing soup, gluing yourself to the, the floor of the U.S. Open tennis court and all these all these tactics that seem to be turning people off even those who are supportive of the cause so take me through um your case there and and what you think makes a an effective protest first of all there's kind of two reasons that people protest maybe three you know that i would say are like big buckets one is to raise awareness about an issue Another is to kind of win people over to your movement. So, you know, grow the cause. And the third is to like affect immediate change. So, you know, raise awareness. You do some kind of stunt about something you think people don't really know anything about and you want to put it on the radar. Uh, You're trying to win people over to your cause. You do something that's like so compelling that people feel the need to sort of join your movement or you make an issue that's sort of out there in the ether, like really mainstream and important affect change. Like you, you want to stop something. I mean, a a good example might be, or you want something to happen um, is like the Dakota access pipeline protests, which I wrote about. I'm somebody who's actually generally pro pipeline because um, even though I have concerns about climate change and all sorts of other issues related to the environment, moving fossil fuels through pipelines is actually way safer than putting them on trains or trucks or other means of passing them around. So I prefer that. But uh, the people who protested the Dakota Access Pipeline effectively delayed it for a really long time. They forced a bunch of court cases. Their protests worked in a lot of ways for a while until it eventually didn't and they kind of lost. But uh, generally speaking, I thought it was a pretty effective protest. So in that lens, I'm seeing what's happening in the climate change space, which, you know, like you you said, there's people throwing food and soup and paint at these like timeless works of art and museums in France or all over the world, really. There's this guy who glues himself to the seat at the US Open. Um, and then there's the increasingly common move of people just sitting out in traffic and blocking some highway with signs that say, you know, climate change is emergency or whatever. And my response to basically all of those kinds of protests is this hits none of those buckets. You're not winning anybody over. You're not raising awareness about an issue that people really care or or don't know about. And you're not affecting any change. You're not actually moving the ball on any kind of policy or stopping something from happening. You're literally just pissing people off and making them feel the same way you felt when you saw the kind of petulant children protesters who are, you know, behind a cause that you believe in. And so what I said in my piece was climate protesters need to stop acting like they are this little marginalized community that, you know, is totally uh, behind a cause that nobody knows about and that they're like effectively being sidelined. We have the most climate-friendly, quote-unquote, president in American history the Green New Deal and all these really far left green energy climate kinds of movements are being more and more popularized in the Democratic Party. They're as mainstream as they've ever been. 
And when you look at polling, most Americans, A, know about climate change, believe humans are causing it, B, and C, want the government to do more to address it. Now, there's disagreement about how far they should go. You know, I think a lot of people in these green energy movements want to see us just stop producing fossil fuels, which many Americans would feel is like totally unrealistic and they don't want to pay $10 a gallon for gas and switch to electric vehicles tomorrow. So certainly there's room for disagreement, but the reality is climate protesters have the wind at their backs and they act like they don't. They they do these things as if they were, you know, the the Rosa Parks of their generation, which a lot of themselves kind of fancy their movement as being. I mean, one of the climate organizations I wrote about sort of tweeted out in response to anger over them blocking traffic that they were, you know, taking cues from Martin Luther King Jr. And it's like, Martin Luther King Jr. was hated and demonized and fighting the uphill battle of convincing Americans to let go of segregation and the Jim Crow era and move on the Civil Rights Act and all these things. He he was in like a decidedly different position than the climate protesters are in, where they are actually moving into a position of strength. And I think they could start acting that way. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really frustrating to see the stuff that they're doing as someone who does care about climate change and see the way the people they're protesting in front of react. I mean, you watch these videos and it's like these people are so pissed. They're like, I'm trying to get to my job. I have to feed my kids, like get out of the road. We know the climate is, we, we know the planet's melting. What you're doing is not helping. And they're just like totally 100% right in my opinion. So. Um, I'm hoping they change tactics, but it seems like that kind of stuff is becoming more and more common right now, not less. Yeah, the clip that that you referred to earlier um, was really shocking. I saw that get a lot of traction, particularly in conservative media. And I think, you know, just yet another reason that a lot of people on the right feel that they can just kind of totally dismiss concerns of people who are who are worried about climate change because they see these most hyperbolic examples and then think that that's or feel as though that's the the outgrowth of of any concern at all period about the climate but that that encounter where you have these climate protesters like sitting cross-legged across a highway and then like perhaps the most diverse group of Americans emerge <laughs> from their cars like truly like the most diverse group of people who are all just united in the fact that they just want to get to fucking work basically. And one of the women, I, it was a quite a powerful moment where she's like screaming in this protester's face. And she says, I got, I've got kids to feed bitch. And like, that's, I think the, the ultimate disconnect that, um, that inspired your piece. And also I think makes a lot of people just roll their eyes at this entirely. And as climate week, um, rolls around this week and we had some protests in New York city this past weekend, what would you say are, um, ways that people can meaningfully agitate for change on the climate front, which, you know, is a, a larger, more kind of abstract issue that they're tackling. Like, how can they actually make meaningful, actionable change or reorient their protests? Yeah, well, look, for, first of all, I have a couple answers to that, I guess. I, I, I would say number one is the focus of their protests, I think, should be the White House and Congress and big corporations, which at this point are going to have the greatest influence on what comes next in terms of, you know, the the future of environmentalism in the United States. When your protests are targeted at people like the normal kind of powerless citizens who are on their way to work, or may, maybe not even powerless, but the people who don't really have their hands on the lever of levers of power right now, I think that's where you lose me. Like, we, we don't need you to walk into an art museum and throw soup at a piece of art. We don't need you to, you know, glue yourself to the seat at the US Open. We need you to target those protests at, at people that you think actually can elicit meaningful change. So that's number one. Number two, I think they need to really reframe the conversation in terms that will get the attention and the care of not just normal citizens, but also those those kinds of politicians. So like, you know, from, from my perspective, the floods and the wildfires and the food shortages that we're seeing in places abroad 
and the states like Oklahoma and Colorado that are running out of groundwater and seeing their rivers dry up. I mean, these are, are real issues that are affecting people of all different political stripes. And, you know, they're going to have meaningful impacts on things like food prices and the price of water and our energy security of the future. And I think there are ways to deliver that message to Americans that is more effective than just focusing on, you know, this idea that the planet's getting warmer or that oil is bad or that we need to stop emitting greenhouse gases. I think like there are some impacts of climate change that we're seeing now. And just, I want to be clear that like not every big storm is because of climate change and every wildfire is because of climate change, whatever, but the ground is drier and we're seeing stronger storms and we're seeing kind of these like one in a thousand year floods every 20 years now. And there are issues like that, that I think are resonant for people, regardless of what your political background is. And that kind of stuff, I think, can move the move the bar in terms of like we need to start really thinking about what this transition into fewer fossil fuels looks like what we're going to do in terms of shoring up our coastlines what we're going to do to make sure that you know we're growing enough food here in the United States for Americans and we're not going to rely on grain from Ukraine to to feed everybody these are things that i think like could be communicated in a better way and I think they need to move away from the planet's warming and oil's bad, which like they've won that argument with 65% of Americans and move into like, what, what what's the solution? And, you know, what kinds of other impacts are we seeing because of climate change that people want to see addressed? That, that's how I would frame it. But it feels like the movement is very much stuck where it was kind of 20 years ago before that conversation was sort of won, in my opinion. Yeah. And two things that I've thought of that I actually think could get some broad-based support is agitation for nuclear energy. I think there's a lot of people on the right who are bullish on that front. And I was especially perturbed to find out that Just Stop Oil, who is the organization that's responsible for a lot of the very obnoxious uh, protests happening in the UK, has come out against nuclear energy. So it's like, what solutions are you actually proposing? Um, And another thing that I think you could get a lot of support on as well is calling out like leaders who are extremely hypocritical on this issue, like John Kerry, who's flown to accept climate change awards in a private jet, or Bill Gates, who still jets around in his private jet, or Meghan and Harry, who virtue signal and posture quite a bit on the climate issue, but also borrow other people's private jets. And I, I think that there's meaningful hypocrisy to be called out that like, People are just irked by that in general across the political spectrum. And, and I think actually asking leaders to live by the um, standards that they want to impose on others and to actually do their part um, would be something that pretty much everyone can get behind. But those are my own unsolicited yeah. points. <laughs> I, I would add to just kind of in that vein, you know, there's so much money being thrown around by like rich, liberal, elite, like 0.01 percenters that go into influencing government and lobbying and things like that. And I would love to see a sort of liberal-based movement that is approaching conservatives who want to invest in technological solutions, who want to invest in like, where's the next Tesla? You know, where's the company that's going to, solve how to reduce emissions from airplanes? Where's the company that's going to think about, you know, the the future of carbon capture? I mean, Republicans are generally not so wary of, at least not anymore, not so wary of like the general climate change narrative. What they're wary of is like a huge thumb of the government coming in and, and putting its weight on the scale to you know, over-regulate and push certain in- industries inorganically, like we're seeing with, you know, the auto industry right now, where they're trying to mandate certain levels of like electric vehicle quotas, those kinds of things. There would be a lot more support from the Republican Party, in my opinion, if the leaders of this movement on the left showed some real willingness and investment in the technological 
future of the fight against climate change and the kind of quote unquote free market solutions. I think there's a lot more space for that. I mean, so much focus is just on the regulation side of it. And I do think there's still a lot of meat on the bone and and some, you know, bipartisan unity to be had around the just the that kind of like free market corporate solution to a lot of these issues and investing in new startups and companies like that that have kind of a green renewable edge. I think there's room for that that, you know, hasn't totally been fulfilled across the board. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually like on a somewhat related note, I had an op-ed in The Spectator a while ago about like how I I feel like the rhetoric around climate in especially in the context of like growing up in the past decade or so, that's like the world that I've come into is a ton of attention being paid to this issue to the point where it's like apocalyptic and paralyzing for a lot of young people. Like I remember the abject terror that I felt in my science classes. And like, there's like, I I hear so many people in my generation being like, I have eco-anxiety. There's now apparently eco-therapists and stuff that are specifically for those who are like crippled by their anxiety about the environment. And like, I think the way that we've, or I I guess in, in the effort to draw attention to this issue, the way that um, a lot of people who are concerned about this issue have framed it to young people is this like, basically you're already done in toast sort of framework of like the world's going to end in 12 years. And like, we're already like what, three or four years since AOC declared that for whatever reason in public. And like, it's just, if you want the next generation of leaders to come up and actually feel empowered to innovate and make change, like you have, I think we need to reframe this as like a challenge that Gen Z has to inherit. But the problem is we're so extremist about this concept that like things are already done and irreversible. And I don't see any meaningful, actual, like innovative energy coming out of this like crippling anxiety that people are growing up with. Like I've, I've seen it firsthand. I have friends who aren't going to have kids who as a result of climate change. And like, that's just, that's not a positive restorative vision of the future. And I think we're screwed if the next generation either has tuned it out entirely as I admittedly sometimes do because I get tired of talking about the abstractions and I need to more meaningfully engage with it. But on the flip side, it's like kids who just can't even function because they're so anxious about this. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge issue. And especially the, I think the extreme views of what the future is going to look like that have been totally subscribed to when we know that there's like a good deal of uncertainty. And even in the models that we have, that the most likely outcome is not some end of world situation. It's it's a great deal of disruption and a lot of migration and food insecurity and coastal towns that are uninhabitable and really hot areas that are uninhabitable. It's not good, but it's like, we have solutions on the table that we can go after and try and address. And I, I similarly really fear for that, you know, your, your generation, the, the Gen Z generation that does seem to me to be totally crippled with anxiety and also just like doomerism. I mean, just the belief that there's nothing left to be done, which um, I think is totally untrue. And I think, again, the the reality is like the wind is at the back of a lot of the climate protesters and the climate movement. And the sooner they realize that, I think the more progress they'll make in the next 10 or 20 years. But the more they keep acting like this sort of marginalized community, the the fewer people that they're going to bring to their side and the less progress that they're going to make in the next 10 to 20 years. Absolutely. I completely agree. And one final topic that I'd love to delve into with you is one that I know Ravi and I kind of have a little bit of tension over the his his clarif- or his declaring himself a anti-populist and I'm definitely not in the anti-populist camp. I'm not sure where I really fall, but I've been interested in this election cycle in the rise of enthusiasm for like outsider candidates that seem to be kind of following a bit in the footsteps of Trump as just someone who's going to come into politics out of left field and ascend to the presidential position and and drain the swamp or whatever their counterparts may be. But um, two people in this race that I'm I'm thinking of who I think have generated quite a bit of excitement around their campaigns from perhaps more like populist or you know politician skeptical groups are Vivek Ramaswamy, who comes from a, a business background and has not held office. 
Um, and RFK Jr., who, despite his family name, is an environmental lawyer and uh, obviously a very contentious vaccine activist and also has not held office. And so, and even Marianne Williamson, who got now two shout outs, but is popular with some young people. We have these <laughs> these completely novel biographies that up until Trump are would really be surprising in how much attention they're generating. And I'm curious to hear what your take is on why there seems to be such a growing desire for this sort of outsider candidate and what that appeal might be about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, let me, I just to show my cards here before I say anything, I am not a big fan of Ramaswamy, RFK Jr. or Marion Williamson running for president. I think like uh, the thing about me that's probably like the most statist and kind of lefty is that I really strongly believe in people coming into office and running the country who have kind of gone through the levers of government and have experience you know, executive experience in government and know how Congress works and know how legislation works and know how to pass laws and and be effective in that regard. I think RFK Jr. in that context is preferable to me to any of the others because he at least is somebody who as an environmental lawyer and an activist has done a lot to fight certain legislation and push for certain legislation. I think he understands given his background, really how Washington, D.C. works. And I think that's a good thing if you want a president who's going to be effective. I mean, say what you want about Biden. He's gotten a lot done, and it's not a coincidence that his entire career has been as a politician. Some of what he's gotten done hasn't been good. But anyway, that's just like my intro for that. That being said, I think like the reason that they're really popular is because A, you know, Nobody wants a Biden-Trump rematch. Everybody's exhausted by the kind of partisan rancor that's come out of this head-to-head matchup. Every A lot of Americans, as we talked about earlier in the show, view both of them as being too old or too incompetent or whatever to run for office. And I think people are in sort of a burn-it-down mood. And that's what Trump capitalized on in 2016 now he has uh, four years of a record as the president that he's running with, which makes it a little bit harder to be that outsidery candidate. I will say, I mean, taking Marion Williamson out of it, who I think is like the biggest long shot of those three, I think the reason that Vivek and RFK Jr. are succeeding in some ways is a little bit different. I think Vivek is, you know, He's like a a class trader that is coming from the top and speaking for what he views as the bottom. And, you know, Ravi and I talked about this a little bit, like what, what constitutes authentic populism. But I think what he's doing really well is saying, I've been in these board meetings. I know how these companies work. I know how the woke stuff works. I know how this like ESG investment works. I know what Ivy League schools are like. They look down on you. They hate you. They don't believe in this American promise anymore. I've been there and they've radicalized me to your side. And I think that's like a really effective message. I also think that it's coming from somebody who's the children of immigrants, is a person of color, is young. He's he's all these things that like the Republican Party is being told that it's not, which I think it makes him more appealing to a lot of Republican voters. I think RFK Jr. is succeeding because he represents sort of like the Bernie Sanders, anti-vax, populist S-wing of the left, which is like anti-corporation, very distrustful of big pharma, very distrustful of the military industrial complex, and speaks to all these things that Biden is, you know, so divorced from as like a career politician, very establishment person, very moderate Democrat, who's like, trust the experts, we're going to defend Ukraine and, you know, be the principal of the world and all these things. So it's a little bit different for me why they're both succeeding. But I think they are each effectively, you know, speaking to their sides, kind of more populist or further out from the center wing. Obviously, I don't see any path to victory for either of them. Vivek, because he's doing what's effectively a Trump impersonation when the real thing is in the race. And and, uh, RFK Jr., because 
you know, his views on things like vaccines and um, and the war in Ukraine are are actually pretty divorced from your typical Democratic based voter. And because the Democratic Party is not really allowing anyone to challenge Biden. So, you know, he's screwed for different reasons, in my opinion. But um, there's clearly a big resentment towards what the norm is in the country right now. And Obama in 2008 harnessed a little bit of that. And he came in and he sort of turned into like a very standard bearer establishment president. And President Biden or President Trump tapped into that in 2016. And I think, you know, without COVID and the January 6th riots probably has a pretty good chance of getting reelected in 2020. And uh, the fact that he didn't, I don't think is because that sort of angry populist-esque upset went away. I think it's because, you know, Trump mishandled a lot of really important things in really big ways. And that was enough to turn the middle independent voter against him and, you know, stopped him from being reelected. On that note that you brought up earlier on on Vivek, kind of fulfilling that class traitor sort of role, there's um, a, a social scientist named Peter Turchin, who I heard on Barry Weiss's podcast recently. He's a really interesting guy. And he um, he basically like forever ago predicted that something really weird socially was going to happen around 2020, which seemed to come to fruition. But he had this he has this book called End Times that's um the subtitle is Elites, Counter Elites and the Path of Political Disintegration. And it's essentially about how like historically in in turbulent times where there is a populist sort of uprising that it's this counter elite sort of prototype of people who tends to actually lead that. And they're the the dissidents from like elite institutions or from from corporate, I mean, corporate America would be the modern example or like a Barry Weiss type who leaves who leaves the New York Times. And, and it tends not to be the actual people on the ground, but this predictable subset of people. So that, that's an interesting podcast to listen to if you're curious about. Um, like I, I don't wholesale endorse all of his views, but he was a, a very interesting person to listen to. And him and Barry had a frightening conversation about how he thinks that we're very near end times. Um, but that's a, a kind of offshoot. Um, and I digress a bit, but there was this interesting bit of research as well from U Chicago, a researcher named Peter Bizarret. I might be wrong on that, but he found that these outsider candidates tend to do better and succeed more in areas where there's more intense polarization and that they also tend to succeed more often when they do work in the like primary political binary. I'm curious if you have any sort of theory, I'm putting you on the spot here, but why polarization and, um, you know, I, I guess political extremes tend to pull in that sort of outsider prototype? Yeah, I, it's a good question. I mean, I, without seeing the research, I would imagine that, you know, when the middle is very strongly intact and there's bipartisan consensus on issues, that makes it a little bit harder for people to get traction coming in as like a quote unquote outsider or, or populist. I think, you know, you look at the kind of campaign that someone like Ramaswamy is running and he's not out there on a like a unity ticket. You know, he's not talking about how to reach across the aisle and work with Democrats. He's out there saying that Republicans and Democrats who are in Congress are screwing over Americans. You know, it's the the Democratic agenda is really dangerous. And the Republicans who are currently in power are not doing enough to slow it down or to go on offense. I mean, that's the general message that I hear when I listen to him. And I think the only way that message is effective is if there's a huge base in the Republican Party that really genuinely fears and or loathes the other side. And so when you have increased polarization, that fear and loathing is is out there in, in higher numbers. And so it's easier to kind of channel that into 10 or 20 percent of, you know, primary voters who say that they'll cast the ballot for you. You know, again, with RFK, I'd be interested. I mean, I don't know how much of his success is tied to polarization as it is to that there were these really big traumatic things that happened in the United States over the last few years 
that he's just doing a better job of speaking to. I mean, I think the Democratic establishment seriously underestimates how much frustration and anger and kind of scarring there is out there from COVID-19 and lockdowns in schools and the effectiveness of the vaccines and some of what people think are kind of underreported dangers and plus costs of, you know, the vaccines. And I think RFK is, he's channeling that. I mean, clearly he's, he's speaking about that in ways that is resonant for a lot of people on the left. And then the war in Ukraine is probably the second biggest story of the last two or three years behind COVID. And the, the simple talking point that we should be spending our money at home and not abroad has always been effective and continues to be effective every time we get dragged into another conflict. And so, you know, I think he's, he's sort of capitalizing on a, a disenchantment with the democratic establishment that hasn't been totally realized. But, you know, I'm sure when the partisan nature of politics is higher, it's like Democrats are solely focused on being kind of anti-Trump and anti-Republican right now. And you can swoop in and say, I'm somebody on the left criticizing the Democratic Party and kind of fill a void that that exists there where there aren't a lot of voices like that running for office right now. So um, yeah, that's an interesting concept. It makes intuitive sense to me. And um, I think checks out with like how I view the the fractures on both sides right now. Mm. And even though like Vivek and RFK have, you know, relatively small shares of the overall popular support, I would note that they're both like, they both have some unprecedented characteristics about their popularity. Like the fact that RFK has managed to touch 20% a couple of times in the polls with Democratic primary voters up against an incumbent, I think is significant. Um, and Vivek as well, his donor base is really unique. Like he has, I think, uh, as much as 40% first time donors, which means that there's actually a lot of like grassroots support from people who don't traditionally engage in politics and wouldn't necessarily feel motivated to send money to someone. So I think that's definitely demonstrating that they're touching some sort of meaningful um, like vibe going on in America. And my feeling on this is like, I'll, I'll let my kind of cards show as well here. But um, I, I just don't think that there's a meaningful route for someone to ascend the political ladder in this country unless they work in the political binary and end up sounding very much like everybody else in whatever party they decide to join up with. And Americans are so much more nuanced than just Democrat and Republican and whatever the party interests are of that respective kind of monolith that I think everyone blends into. And so the only person in my view that can really show up in in an election or in a, a presidential election and actually talk to or speak to or appeal to that like middle 50% of people who might not be dedicated partisans one way or another, in my view, kind of has to come from the outside unless they're a very unusual character, like, like a Joe Manchin type or someone who, I mean, I guess Liz Cheney, but I don't, but I think even still those people come with the the political baggage of having been a member of their party and then having crossed their party and then, you know, becoming a non-starter sort of name with uh, the whatever partisans there are on the opposite side. So I think that this is like one route away from that to allow for some more healthy credentialism to, you know, I mean... Like, I agree with you that I would rather someone who has experience running a country be president, but I also would rather someone who sounds more like the middle or average or typical person run the country as well. And I think, like, I'm I'm very much in the camp of open primaries and um, ranked choice voting and, and ways that we can actually get people, at least starting at the bottom of the ladder on the local level, that can ascend and can actually be answerable to the political middle and the average of whoever they're representing rather than the extremes. Because I think unless you're an outsider now, you can't really say anything that's all that different from everyone else. Well, what do you make of Vivek Ramaswamy? I mean, I know Ravi has sort of referenced that you have some inkling of support for his candidacy. I mean, how do you view him amongst the other Republican candidates? Yeah. So actually, um, I, a while ago, he had that proposal to raise the minimum voting age to 25. And I wrote an op-ed in the, he announced that in an op-ed in the post. And I wrote a counter op-ed like a week later 
um, saying I thought that was a really stupid idea, frankly, and I still do. But um, he invited me up to his campaign to like talk that out in person. And I actually found that to be super interesting. Like I think he's uniquely able and willing to engage with criticism across the aisle. He's done a remarkable job on the um, media circuit and getting out there and engaging with adversarial media and I think coming out looking pretty good. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I've, I think a lot of what he's platforming or what he's campaigning on is interesting. I do get frustrated often by the very obvious guardrails he has when it comes to touching Trump. But I think that also makes a lot of sense in this kind of primary system that he's running in. Um, you know, when I spoke to him, he, he said something to the effect of like, you know, I think the Republican party is just the vehicle that I'm hitching myself onto. And, um, you know, I think that's an unfortunate reality because I do think that he is nuanced and different and interesting and could potentially be a little less calculated in his approach if there was a primary system that didn't require him to just pander to the political extremes. Um, but I mean, I find him interesting. I I like the model of a, a different younger candidate just coming in and shaking things up and giving an alternative in a world where it feels like we're being served up these two 80 year olds that everyone hates and you know anyone that throws their hat in and actually can mobilize support i'm i'm like cool shake it up a little bit yeah no i hear that for sure i mean i i will say probably the most impressive part of his campaign has been the media side of it i mean when you compare it i mean trump recently in the last week or two has kind of stepped into a few different interviews that i think could have gotten him into hot water he went on megan kelly um, he went on MSNBC, which he hadn't really been doing much of recently. He'd kind of been staying in his little media bubble. And Biden obviously has been one of the least accessible presidents to the media in in modern history, which is one of my biggest gripes with him. So it has been refreshing, at least for me, to see Vivek go on these podcasts, go on these YouTube shows. He seems to just say yes to pretty much everything. And you know, I've seen him on MSNBC, I've seen him on CNN, and uh, it's, you know, he he gets himself into some predicaments where I think he ends up playing so much defense that he says some things that are a little bit detached from reality, but it's very refreshing to see someone like him just step into the lion's den, be willing to talk to anybody. I I haven't really seen that since, you know, Trump 2016. And he was the first one to really ever do it the way he did. So, um, you know, that that's been encouraging for me. And I would love to see that become more of a trend for sure. Yeah. Following that guy for a day on the campaign trail, like for a full day, like sunrise to sunset, basically. My God, is he like, just a machine like the amount of MAGA hat wearing people whose hands he shook in in New Hampshire and like stops to do interviews on the phone and then to talk to me and then we're in the back of his car and doing an interview on the way to his plane to fly to Iowa like it's that level of like vigor I think is something that's really been lost um doing the full circle back to our our first topic here um with uh the growing age of the political landscape but you know Maybe maybe he'll secure himself a cabinet or VP position or something like that. We'll see. Yeah, sometimes it seems like that's what he's auditioning for. There's no doubt. Who knows? Um, he's he claims <laughs> he hasn't, but I'm I'm a little suspicious of that. But um, anyways, I think that's all we have for today. Um, if you have any thoughts or input, um, please feel free to give us a voicemail. Our voicemail number is three two one two zero 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 five seven zero. And we will be back here on Tuesday with another episode.